The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V. And he also serves as the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And yourself? Just the same, Father. Good, good yes. to see you. Great to be here. Thank you. Father, uh, prayer requests to begin the program tonight? Oh, yes. Always, always. Uh, in fact, so many... To mention, um, I, I would mention in particular, though, uh, the need for prayers for uh, uh, Mr. Riley, Paul Riley, of course, still needs that for his entire family, actually. His dear wife is a uh, very heroic soul, and um, Paul is going through a great deal, a lot, a great deal right now. We pray that he recovers uh, fully, and um, but he's in good hands with uh, his dear wife and uh, his children who love him very dearly. Uh, after this great accident uh, that uh, that uh, injured him so severely, uh, also uh, David, uh, Doctor David Hofrichter is recovering from surgery. We pray that he'll be, um, you know, on his feet in no time and doing well. But he's been through a, an enormous amount, so with a uh, quite remarkable amount of patience, I might add too. So um, we ask uh, for prayers for him and his loved ones as well. And there are many others, uh, Tom, as well. I uh, could mention, you know, the 20 others very immediately left in my head, but I just ask you to pray for those who are um, mentioned on the Immaculate Heart of Mary prayer list and who are enclosed, enclosed in Our Lady's Immaculate Heart. Okay? Mm -hmm. You pray for the, your priest's intentions. You're praying for all of those who suffered so much and uh, continue to suffer. God will bless you for praying for them. And we'll bless them for, for the charity expressed in your prayers. So sure. Have confidence. Pray with a great deal of confidence. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for that, Father. Uh, Father, we wondered if you could um, comment a bit on the, uh, the time of the, the church year that we're in. Um, we're still in the time after Easter. We're still celebrating the uh, glorious resurrection of our Lord. But we also, uh, just this past Thursday, celebrated the Feast of the Ascension. <clears throat> of our Lord, uh, another very great, great feast day, a holy day of obligation. Um, but now this coming Sunday, we are celebrating the feast day of, of Pentecost, or the, uh, the birthday of, of the church, um, sometimes we hear referred to. Or, and um, so any comments on this, this time of the year, Father, where there, there's so much going on between Easter and uh, the Ascension and Pentecost, what, uh, what, should, what should Catholics be, uh, be praying about right now? Well, Tom, this uh, brief period between the Feast of the Ascension and Pentecost Sunday is about 10 days, as you know, from the Thursday, Ascension Thursday to Pentecost Sunday. We actually commemorate the time that the apostles were in effect on retreat. Um, not in retreat, on retreat. There's a big difference. Um, our Lord had spent 40 days after his resurrection instructing the apostles. We know this from the uh, first verse of the Acts of the Apostles, where St. Luke tells us that our Lord spent those 40 days instructing his apostles on the, uh, the, the kingdom of God, the, the uh, kingdom of heaven on earth, referring to the church. So our Lord was spending these 40 days uh, actually taking them to school, uh, in a sense, and teaching them uh, what they were to do. He was going to give them a great commission a commission that he actually expressed uh, just before he ascended into heaven, going, therefore, make disciples, preach the gospel to all nations, he said, and baptize in the, them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, and instruct them to observe all things that I've commanded you. So that's our Lord conferred upon the apostles uh, the three great powers of Christ himself, uh, the power of uh, the of prophecy being the prophet preaching the gospel, the truth of God in the world, uh, the power of the priesthood, the priestly power to justify souls from sin and sanctify them by grace, 
and the third power, the pastoral power, to, uh, to govern them. And our Lord gave these powers, entrusted these powers to his apostles just before he ascended into heaven. Our Lord told them that they would be very sad to see him go. Of course, they were, uh, especially since he had given them such a, an enormous task to fulfill. And now they would not have his, his physical presence among them. Uh, they would not have the sight of his face. They would not have the sound of his voice uh, to comfort them literally, to give them strength. Uh, but our Lord promised them that he, uh, he would do what was best for them in ascending into heaven, in leaving them. He would, uh, as I say, it was expedient for them that he go. Why? Because he said if he did not go, the Holy Ghost would not come to them. Uh, but if he went, if our Lord went from them, he would send the Holy Ghost from heaven to them. And some people ask sometimes, well, uh, why was it necessary for our Lord to go for the Holy Ghost to come? And uh, without going into long explanations of that, um, perhaps we can suffice by saying right now that um, just as our Lord himself, the Son of God, was sent by his Father, so the Holy Ghost also had to be sent by the Father and the Son. And so our Lord ascended into heaven precisely for that purpose of sending the Holy Ghost to guide the church throughout the ages. Uh, the Holy Ghost's mission uh, toward the worldly and sinners was to convict the world of sin and of justice and of judgment. The Holy Ghost's mission to the faithful of our Lord, though, was to confirm them in the faith and uh, to enlighten their minds and, and uh, to fortify and inspire their wills. Uh, in order to be faithful to our Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Ghost was not coming, as our Lord said, to teach us new doctrines. The modernists would say that. But there's ongoing revelation of new doctrines. Francis's Vatican, you know, is, is based upon that idea that we have this constant evolution of dogma and doctrine going on there, which basically does away with all real doctrine. But that's not what our Lord said. Our Lord said the Holy Ghost would come in order to bring to the minds of the apostles and those who followed them all things that our Lord himself had taught us. So the Holy Ghost's mission was to keep us on the track and keep us mindful of what our Lord himself had already revealed, not to reveal new doctrine to us. So uh, this great mission that the apostles were sent on by our Lord at his ascension um, was conferred to them was conferred upon them at his ascension, but they were not ready to carry out that mission yet. <clears throat> there, there was still work to be done within each one of them. They had the instruction, they had the command, but our Lord then told them, but you must go back to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Ghost whom I will send to you. And that Holy Ghost would come to them on Pentecost Sunday and transform those men. Uh, the Holy Ghost transformed these, these men from weak and vacillating individuals, the, the kind of people who would uh, curse and swear that they never knew our Lord when they, were, when they felt threatened, as Peter did, the kind of men who would even betray our Lord, as Judas had done, and the kind of men who would not necessarily even believe after the other apostles had believed, as St. Thomas the Apostle had said, I will not be unless I put my fingers in his, the nose, holes in his hand. And the Holy Ghost would come and transform them all. And in the upper room on that Easter and that Pentecost Sunday, there were 120 individuals. And among them, the apostles, uh, not only the 11 apostles, but the one whom, as, at Peter's instigation, they had chosen to take Judas's place. That Matthias was also then among them as one of the apostles. And uh, they were all waiting and praying with the Blessed Mother, uh, what were they doing? Well, they were on retreat, you might say, preparing and, and, and waiting for that great arrival of this spirit of truth, the paraclete, the Holy Ghost, to come upon them. And the Holy Ghost did come upon them, we know how, the, in the form of parted tongues of fire, as they, he appeared in that way. There was a great sound of a mighty wind blowing. They didn't say uh, that the wind filled the house. They said the sound of the mighty wind blowing filled the house where they were staying. Where were they? They were in the upper room uh, where the Last Supper had been offered by our Lord and where he had found them the night of the resurrection on Easter Sunday. Uh, 
This, uh, they say, was the banquet hall owned by St. Joseph of Arimathea, who provided that for them. And uh, the transformation on Pentecost Sunday was immediate and it was startling. Uh, the apostles came out of that room and confronted the thousands of pilgrims on Pentecost to Jerusalem. It was said that uh, Jerusalem would ordinarily have a population of about 300,000 people at that time, but at times like Pentecost, uh, the population uh, could swell to well over a million people, perhaps 1,200,000 people had swelled the streets of, of Jerusalem at that time. And it was uh, that great crowd of pilgrims who'd come to Jerusalem, the holy city, uh, that the apostles confronted, actually, with the power of the Holy Ghost. And who spoke up? Peter, of all people. Peter, of all people. The man who cursed and swore just days before that he had ever met our Lord, now spoke up boldly and uh, spoke very convincingly, but it was the power of the Holy Ghost in him that had the power of convincing. Uh, 3,000 souls were re received in baptism into the church on that one day alone. Uh, so these, these days of the apostles waiting were very fruitful. Uh, they were essential for the mission that they were to accomplish. And that's a very important lesson for you and me, Tom, that if we're going to undertake any great work, that we need to, well, we, we should go on retreat. We should actually prepare ourselves in order to undertake that great spiritual work and um, trust that God will provide the graces necessary. If it is a work that he wants us to fulfill, he will provide the means. In this case, he gave the command to the apostles, and he, he gave the means when he sent the Holy Ghost to transform them. So it, it, uh, this period of time is, is a very beautiful time of year. It's a time of great anticipation. And if there's anything we need to do right now, it's to enter into that upper room with the apostles and pray and beg God to send again, to send anew the power of the Holy Ghost <clears throat> into the world, even through us, even through our own souls. Father, does the Holy Ghost still carry on that same mission today? I think a lot of, of uh, a lot of Catholics can see a lot of similarities between uh, the pre-Pentecost apostles <laughs> and, the, and themselves. So um, how, how can a Catholic uh, go about um, receiving the Holy Ghost as the Apostles did on, on Pentecost Sunday? What can we do to affect well, that same information? <clears throat> we we can't uh, be presumptuous in thinking, of course, <laughs> that the Holy Ghost will appear to us as a part of the tongue of fire, that we'll hear the, the rushing wind, and <clears throat> we can't receive the Holy Ghost that way, because God could arrange for that if he so wished. But <clears throat> the important thing is the, the, the effect of the Holy Ghost in the soul, as, as you know very well, we want the Holy Ghost to enlighten our minds, to strengthen our wills. Uh, actually, we just essentially defined what actual graces do, what actual graces are. You see, the, the Holy Ghost comes to us with his seven gifts. <clears throat> and the seven gifts of the Holy Ghost uh, are, are not the same as virtues, okay? The virtues are different from the gifts. The gifts of the Holy Ghost actually soften our souls, you might say, to make them receptive. The Holy Ghost's gifts enable us to receive. Very much, you might say, as a farmer tills his soil to break up the hard clay, which is <clears throat> just uh, set against the seed that he wants to plant and set against the, the rain, and the rain falls and runs off because it can't penetrate the soil that is set like concrete, like our souls in sin. And so the first work of the Holy Ghost in the human soul through his gifts is to <clears throat> enable the soul now to receive the life-giving rain, to enable the soul to receive the life-giving natural you know, nutrients, to enable the soul to receive the seed itself, the receipt of faith, and so that, that that seed can grow and flourish there. That's what the gifts accomplish. From the first of the gifts, the fear of the Lord, to the greatest of the gifts, the gift of wisdom, all the gifts enable the soul to receive <clears throat> the, the actual graces that the Holy Ghost then brings to us, it sends to us. <clears throat> but then when we receive those graces in our intellects, in our wills, 
to know truth, to love goodness, to enlighten the mind and strengthen the will, then we can begin to apply our own efforts. Then we can actually uh, employ our minds, employ our hearts in doing God's work and thus cultivate the virtues in ourselves. The virtues are things that in us are active. They are our actions under the influence, influence of grace to accomplish the work that God has set aside for us. But again, before we can even begin doing that, we have to first, as it were, open the floodgates of grace, where we have to open our hearts to receive, and that is where the gifts of the Holy Ghost come to enable us to receive the influence, the divine influence, which is so, our hearts are so closed against the divine influence by sin. We need that work of the Holy Ghost to uh, pre prepare the soil, as it were, to receive it. So this is what the Holy Ghost was doing. While the apostles were um, on retreat there, he was preparing them for that moment of his coming, which would be a transformative moment when all the obstacles in their, in their souls, all of the weaknesses, all of the vices, uh, would have to give way. He would simply uh, overwhelm them by the power of this sufficient grace that he was giving. Or I would say efficient grace, in this case, the efficient grace that he was giving to overcome all obstacles in the human soul. Now, again, note, he did not make them impeccable. Uh, the Holy Ghost did not make them impeccable, meaning such that they couldn't sin. I mean, we would see later, St. Peter, weakening under the pressure of the Judaizers to avoid eating at table with the pagan converts. And it was a weakness of Peter's. <clears throat> he was concerned about how, how, how he would be thought of among his own Jewish people. And, uh, and he, was, he was the one who received the first pagans into the church and baptized them, such that they didn't have to become Jewish first. That was the first, uh, it happened in the year 39 AD, six years after our Lord died on the cross. Peter was the one who received the family of Cornelius, the centurion, into the faith. And yet, afterwards, he weakened under the pressure, um, and he would not eat with the pagan converts, until St. Paul called him out on that and rebuked him publicly for, for that weakness. So the Holy Ghost did not take away all, all weakness and, and, and make, their, make them impeccable. Uh, they still had certain weaknesses. Uh, Peter could still flee at the prospect of being martyred, <clears throat> but uh, ultimately it was grace that, that triumphed in them, all of them. Um, so we have to see in this 10-day period between the Ascension and Pentecost Sunday, this great period of preparation for the time they received the commission of Christ to preach the gospel throughout the world, baptize nations, instruct them to observe the commandments of Christ, and the time they actually began that mission. There was this period of time we're in right now, and uh, we need to understand the significance of this time in their lives and in ours too. Mm -hmm. uh, how does uh, how does one receive the gifts of the Holy Ghost? How does he know if he's received them? Does he receive any of the gifts at uh, at say his baptism? <laughs> does it do the only come kind of confirmation? Well, when the, when the even a little child is baptized, the Holy Ghost does enter the soul. Um, the Holy actually Saint Paul tells us that the the Holy Ghost actually enters the soul and speaks this word, Abba, Father. And uh, that's very significant that St. Paul says that because uh, by the grace of baptism, we actually become children of God. God actually adopts us. And we can say then, truly, uh, the words of the Our Father, Our Father who art in heaven. And we pray that for the, the child just as he is about to be baptized, um, to signify that this child is about to become an actual child of God by grace, adopted child by grace. So the Holy Ghost does come into the soul. And of course, the child's intelligence and the child's will are not yet capable of functioning, okay? Um, they, uh, they're latent, as the powers of intellect and will are in the soul, and yet the body is not prepared to, to uh, employ those. So they are latent powers. And yet the Holy Ghost actually has sanctified 
the intelligence and the will of that child already um, by the power of God's grace. So the gifts of the Holy Ghost are already there within the child to make the child receptive. Of course, the child will, will take years in order to come to the age of reason to make a moral act and a moral decision based upon any love for God. But uh, still, our Lord is planting these seeds, as it were, in the child's mind that have to grow and flourish in the course of time. So yes, the, the, the gifts of the Holy Ghost come to the child at the moment the child is baptized. Uh, I baptized a, a gentleman, as you know, at the age of 102. And again, when the Holy Ghost came into that soul, when he was adopted as a child of God at the age of 102, uh, the whole, gifts of the Holy Ghost came into the, the, the heart and mind of that, of that man. Uh, does one know, does one feel that the gifts of the Holy Ghost arrive? Not necessarily. Um, these things don't necessarily affect the passions, the feelings. Um, they are spiritual gifts, and so they affect what is in us most spiritual, what makes us most like God, the intelligence we have to know the truth, and the love we have to, the, the, the will we have to love what is good. That is where the gifts of the Holy Ghost have their most profound effect. Um, but what they do is they take the mind and the heart closed by sin, and uh, when that original sin is removed, and baptism all sin removed, um, is now that mind and that heart are open to receive God's grace. Uh, whether, you know, one doesn't necessarily feel any physical reaction to that, one doesn't need to. Uh, but the reality of it is there. Now, they they may they may notice now they may notice that they're receiving directions or inspirations from God who is directing them to what is right do to, to avoid what is wrong and they may notice a, a certain strengthening of their will they may notice that the influence of the Holy Ghost especially through their guardian angel is more immediate to them in terms of what they're thinking and what they're willing but other than that, they don't necessarily have a physical reaction to it. Mm -hmm. What happens in the sacrament of confirmation? If we receive the gifts of the Holy Ghost and, and baptism, I've heard it said that uh, when one receives the sacrament of confirmation, it's like his own personal Pentecost. So do mm -hmm. we just receive the gifts of the Holy Ghost and more, more fully, more abundantly at that, at that exactly, point? Exactly, exactly right. Well, look at our Blessed Mother. I mean, at, at, the, at the Annunciation, she, she, the Holy Ghost overshadowed her. She conceived our Lord the mother of our Lord, she had already been conceived without original sin herself. And she became the mother of the Savior at that point. So she certainly had the gifts of the Holy Ghost active in her. The very fact that she could say, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it done unto me according to thy word, shows that the, the grace of God was active in her, and she had the gifts of the Holy Ghost to receive that grace wholeheartedly. But uh, at Pentecost, she received a new infusion of the Holy Ghost. We're finite creatures. No matter how, how holy we, we are in the eyes of God, we're still only finite creatures and very limited. There is absolutely no proportion between us and God. There's no proportion between our love for God and God's love for us. There's no proportion for any holiness that is in us and God's own holiness. God's holiness is in us by grace, which is created for us in our souls. But we have uncreated holiness in God himself, who is holiness itself. So there's no proportion between however holy we are. So, you know, really one technically could go on becoming holier and holier and holier, uh, continually, nonstop, moment by moment by moment, if we lived a hundred million years or beyond. One could grow and grow and grow in the love for God and never love God infinitely, never love him as he really deserves to be loved because he's infinite goodness. Fortunately, God doesn't require us to do the impossible, to love him infinitely, because only God can love infinitely. As you see the love between the Father and the Son, the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, there's infinite love there because you have an infinite will, a divine will there. That's not true of us. God doesn't require that of us. And so the Blessed Mother is, is holy in heaven. Is she infinitely holy? No, no creature can be, uh, simply speaking. Um, could our Blessed Mother be holier, absolutely speaking? Well, according to the power of God, God 
could give her grace actually to make her holier, right? Uh, but she she is holy insofar as she has taken every grace that God has given to her, and she's cooperated with it fully. And so she has received the fullness of holiness that is possible, even for her, by the grace of God. But it begins with the, the gifts that she received when she was conceived without original sin. The gifts of the Holy Ghost were already there. The graces of God were already coming. But those graces, as the gifts themselves, could deepen and deepen and have a greater and greater power within her. And so every step of the way, I mean, you might even think of it as though every day of Our Lady's life, she submitted to God's will so perfectly that she was holier at the end of the day than she was at the beginning of the day, every day of her life. Because every day of her life, she was making more and more acts of love for God in everything she did. And so, and during the course of her lifetime, I think we'd have every reason to expect that, that at every single moment in the course of her life, she was growing in grace, growing in, in beauty, growing in power, because she was growing in the love for her Lord. Um, you know, I, I mentioned that Our Lady's love for uh, our Lord is a unique love. You know that. And uh, again, it's, it's something that I think bears repeating. I'm sorry if I'm um, repeating it too often for people, but I don't know how you could. Um, you know, when our Lord tells the apostles at the Last Supper, uh, now you can go to the Father and you can ask the Father. I say now that I will ask the Father for you, but you, you can ask the Father because the Father loves you. He loves you. And the key to the Father's love for you is your love for me. That's what our Lord says. Because you have loved me, the Father loves you. So that the God the Father loves those who love his Son. And that is the key to the Father's love, to love his Son. And so the apostles, we saw how frail their love was for our Lord and what came after that Last Supper. And yet, our Lord appealed to that very love they had for him at least the will to love him, <clears throat> that the Father actually loved them, and they could go to the Father, they had access to the Father. Now that's true of the apostles. Imagine our Blessed Lady, because she loves our Lord uniquely as a parent loves a child. That's a unique love, okay? But that love of our Lady is not only separated and unique among all creatures, but that love of our Lady for the Son of God her son, in a sense, mirrors the love of God the Father for his son. A kind of parental love of a father for the son. And now in Our Lady, the love of a true parent for her son. And so not only is Our Lady's love for our Lord unique among all creatures, angels included, but it has a very close uh, creaturely parallel of the kind of kind of love that the father bears his own son from all eternity. That's, that's how special Our Lady's love is for our Lord. And that helps us to understand then if, if the key to having access to the father and the love of the father is to love his divine son. And Our Lady loves him in this unique way, in a way that is let's say, more akin to the Father's love for the Divine Son than your and my, my love for him. Uh, you can see why she would have a very, very special place in heaven and why she could even be exalted above the angels, you know? So, anyway, I just thought that was uh, something uh, that bore saying again. <laughs> I, hope, I hope you could follow what I was yes, saying. There. Yes, well, Father, that's, um, that's all very beautiful. Thank you. Um, well, to think that the apostles were on retreat with our Blessed Mother, that's, yeah. that's a great retreat master there. I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure there's um, much more that could be said on that, Father. Yeah. Um, very, very beautiful time, of course, but uh, hopefully we can imitate Our Lady and uh, the apostles during this time and uh, share with them this, uh, this Pentecost this year. Um, but we did have another... Another topic we wanted to talk about, Father, um, we just kind of briefly mentioned this uh, on the program last week where uh, Taylor Marshall um, is, uh, is apparently 
declared his candidacy for the president of the uh, United States, and he said that he's running on the uh, Christ the King platform. And um, a lot of our viewers, Father, are very interested to know your thoughts um, on, on Taylor Marshall and, um, and this, uh, his candidacy that he's declared. And I wanted to just briefly read uh, a, a post that he made on his website um, in regards to this. And uh, can I get your thoughts on this, Father? Um, so this is from Taylor Marshall's website. He says, I am currently gathering people who are interested in shifting the political discussion toward natural law and Christian principles by proposing a bid for the office of the, of the of President of the United States. I'm trying to rally Christians around a political vision that acknowledges Christ as King over our government, schools, families, and culture. In the next few weeks, I will begin meeting with leaders, clergy, lawyers, and advisors to build a cultural platform in honor of Christ the King. Father, what do you uh, think about that from Taylor Marshall? Any response? Well, uh, Tom, there, there are two, actually, separate questions here. One is the idea of uh, a bid for presidency, right? Um, even apart from uh, Taylor Marshall himself, right? Uh, you asked me, what do I think of Taylor Marshall? What do I think about his decision to become president or run for president? Um, well, you know that for a long time now, I've been advocating that our traditional Catholic people uh, run for office uh, with the intention not of actually gaining the office, unless God somehow provided that, um, but that they would, at least in running for office, have a platform and they would have the microphone and they could speak their faith and they have the ability to actually um, bear witness to their faith in Christ before the world. Uh, when you are a candidate for an office, by law, you, you, are, uh, you have to be respected. You know, they have to run your, your campaign ads, and they have to allow you to be heard. It's considered to be uh, actually illegal for them to stifle you nowadays. Well, I don't know if, if that would be honored by any of the powers that be, but technically that's the way it's supposed to be. And uh, so this is a, an opportunity we have to speak the truth, and to uh, disseminate, you know, our Catholic principles to a, an electorate, let's say, many of whom, we would hope many of those people would, would hear what we say and be, uh, be influenced positively by what we have to say um, in professing our faith. So, that being the case, I mean, that I, for years now, advocated our traditional Catholics doing that, um, you know, we have this, this situation where Taylor Marshall, um, who, you know, is a, is a controversial figure, there's no doubt about it. I, I think uh, President Trump even had him uh, involved in the campaign for the last election, uh, hoping that, you know, to get the traditional Catholic vote out. But, uh, you know, again, again uh, Taylor Marshall's position is rather ambiguous. It's a rather ambiguous position uh, for a, a fully traditional Catholic. Um, it, it, is not, it is not taking a firm stand, as we would expect, against the Novus Ordo for what it is, as the modernist um, revolution in the Church and has to be rejected in its entirety. That modernism is uh, not only uh, to be rejected in its consequences, but it must be rejected in its principles, in its theology, and so on. And um, so, um, I don't think that uh, Dr. Taylor Marshall really, well, he doesn't see it the way I do, that's, that's clear, clear the case. And uh, as, I, as I said before, I wanted people to run for office with no intention of winning the office. Why? Because I expect that when they got the microphone and they spoke the faith blatantly, boldly, uh, with conviction, that most people would not vote for them. And they'd have to approach their candidacy with that intention, that they are going to speak the faith with such clarity and conviction that people will not, that many people, maybe most people, will not vote for them because of what they're saying is true. And I think those candidates need to have that idea because as soon as they change their thought. As soon as they get the idea, I'm going to run for office and I'm going to say what's necessary to be elected, 
I'm going to tailor, excuse the expression, <laughs> tailor my, my message in order to uh, tone down my faith and perhaps garner a few more votes. Then they're lost. They're lost. They've lost themselves. They've lost their own souls in this, in this whole enterprise of trying to now uh, gain political uh, advantage by, again, compromising their message of their faith. And this is exactly contrary to the whole point. So this is my fear for Taylor Marshall, that if this bid gains any traction at all, that the temptation will be there to, again, uh, find some ways to sugarcoat the message, to, to water it down, to try to get as broad a base as possible, which, again, is death for the message of, uh, of, the, of the true Catholic faith there. Um, so I do, not I do not actually expect any political good to come from it. I, I fear that the result of this is going to be getting this broad base of consultants from across the spectrum and coming up with something that just isn't really a clear-cut, bold, and forthright statement of the faith. I fear that it's going to be somehow, um, what should I say, uh, calculated a little bit, as soon as they start thinking, like, how should we put this, uh, you know, so as not to rank, you know, rankle too many feathers? I mean, even among the 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 people he's 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 consulting, they're going to have to, I think, compromise among themselves, um, because they they will not be able to agree on some of the very serious points there, because there's a there's even a spectrum in thought among the people he's going to be talking to. That I fear this is not going to end well, and I. I pray for him. I, I, I want him to, um, you know, come around to the fullness of the recognition of the evil of modernism and condemn modernism not only in its results, I want him to condemn modernism in its principles, as St. Pius X did. Um, that hasn't happened yet, I believe. But I, I also am fearful for him that he's getting into a realm where compromise is the name of the game, and it's the only way to make any political progress. And when you begin to compromise your faith, or the statement of your faith, when you begin to compromise the statement of your faith in its application, uh, you, and you begin to make exceptions to, to appease this individual or that individual, or this group or that group, um, that's a, a formula for disaster. Um, I, I just don't know. He doesn't even have a political party yet. Um, and he doesn't even have a platform, right, right? He's still trying to compose the platform. Um, so, uh, I mean, we'll see what comes of that. But, uh, you know, in, in saying this, I'm, I'm going to come across as being very critical, I'm sure. Um, but, you know, even among the, the, the wide spectrum of those who consider themselves traditional Catholics right now, there's a lot of, uh, what should I say, controversy and disagreement about this whole question. So many of those voices are saying, oh, this is a publicity stunt, nothing but a publicity stunt. Um, do I think it's a that he's motivated as a publicity stunt? I, I don't think so. I think uh, Taylor Marshall is motivated. This is my charity coming out. Uh, it doesn't come out often, so note the time and the date. But... Uh, I, I prefer to think that Taylor Marshall says, I have an opportunity now to make a bold statement for our Lord, for the faith, for the church of Catholic doctrine. Uh, and and it, it's just going to contradict all of the worldliness coming from all of the other political parties that are all concerned about politics because I will not be concerned about politics. I'm going to be concerned about faith. I'd like to think that that is where he's coming from right now. But coming out with that, with that idea in mind and then realizing it and making it happen in that political spectrum, I, I would be amazed uh, if it can be done in any way without, uh, without 
not only the strong temptation to compromise, but the necessity to start watering things down. Um, and I, 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 I fear that, uh, that this would not end well. Mm -hmm. Father, uh, one, of our, uh, one of our viewers asked if you personally, Father Jenkins, would, would throw your hat in the ring for president. And uh, he, uh, he said that, um, you know, we, it, it doesn't seem right necessarily that we should uh, leave a Novus Ordo Catholic and Taylor Marshall to, uh, to define the, the platform of, of Christ the King. So why do we not have a traditional Catholic um, actually defining that, that platform? Well, if the traditional Catholic is a Catholic priest, his hat is a Beretta, and he can't throw the Beretta in the ring. Uh, because it's forbidden by canon law. A priest cannot go in for politics. He cannot become a politician and run for political office. Um, this is what the traditional canon law called for. So that's impossible. But, but I mean, I like the idea of having somebody, I, I would like having somebody with a traditional Catholic who agrees with me as to what that means, who would actually uh, pick up, you know, Candace and Sam running for the office of whatever it may be, and then use every opportunity he has to proclaim the kingship of Christ and the necessity of uh, following our Lord in, his, in the integrity of faith, hope, and charity and not deviate from that message for any reason, not for one vote. You know, we have the example of our Lord here. We talked about this recently. When, when our Lord had multiplied the loaves and the fishes out in the wilderness, the thousands of people here who had just consumed this miraculous bounty that our Lord had provided for them wanted to take him and compel him to be their king. They, risked, they were going to risk their lives at the hands of the Roman overlords to proclaim Jesus of Nazareth their king. That's how moved they were by what they saw, what they witnessed, what they actually took part in. And... Um, our Lord disappeared from them. You know, he would not have this. Okay? He did not come for that purpose. But the next day, when they found him in the synagogue in Capernaum, our Lord told them that I, you, you came looking for me because I fed you with the loaves and the fishes in the, in the wilderness, but your fathers ate the manna in the desert long ago, and they all died. But I, I can give you a bread. I have a bread that is a living bread that if anyone eat of it, he can live forever. And they believed that maybe he could provide this bread. So they asked him. We went through this all before recently. But what I want to highlight here is what happened when they all realized that our Lord was not watering down his words, but was saying rather, Amen, Amen, I say unto thee, unless you, plural, eat the flesh of man and drink his blood, you will not have life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him, and the Father and I will come and dwell within him. And when our Lord said that, and they, they began to realize, he's simply not going to explain away what he said, I am the living bread that has come down from heaven. Rather, he has intensified this message. And he gave them nowhere to go other than just to either take it or leave it. And they decided to leave. And our Lord watched them go. Sadly, but he watched them go. He didn't stop them. And somebody who would run for political... He, I mean, our Lord even invited the apostles to leave at that point. You remember that. Um, and someone who these days is willing to run for office on the platform of the kingship of Christ has to have the, the attitude, I believe, that I'm not going to say one thing for the sake of gaining one vote, period. In fact, rather than compromise in one thing for the sake of a million votes, <laughs> or a hundred million votes, I would rather speak the truth and have no one vote for me. But I just want the opportunity to profess my faith and my hope and I love for Jesus Christ, and to state publicly in front of whoever will listen that Christ the King is the Savior, and he is the only Savior of mankind individually and mankind as a, oh, the entirety of the race of mankind is the only Savior there is. 
And I would give anything for the sake of being able to say that, even once. Uh, because I know as soon as I say I will adjust my message for the sake of one vote or a million votes, then I know I've already lost. I've already lost. And I'm not following the example of our Lord himself in that. So I, I think our Lord has provided the example that we need right now for those who are going to do what Taylor Marshall proposes to do. I just fear he's going to consult himself into a dither, consulting all of these different people with all these different views, and it's going to be so cacophonous that he won't be able to produce an, an actual coherent program, a statement of the kingship of Christ. Okay. You understand my, my yes, concern. Yeah. What, do you, what do you think, Tim? You, you understand my point, yeah. I, I guess. Do you think it's a valid point or not? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I would just say, I mean, he's a... Novisordo Catholic. I mean, hopefully he has the, uh, hopefully he has the traditional ca traditional Catholic faith. But um, I mean, I don't really see how he could be practicing that w within the confines of the Novisordo. So that would certainly be a he uh, place him at a big disadvantage. That um, you know he might not have that that same faith to to practice. Might not um, you know be be having the same graces at work that a traditional Catholic would have. So um, that's definitely definitely concerning. I think. Well, we have to pray for him individually, for his soul individually in this case, because I think he's putting himself in the lion's cage. Yeah, yeah. If not in the lion's mouth. Yeah. Okay, well, I think we can end with that, Father. Um, anything else in closing? Final comments? Uh, well, Tom, I just uh, wish you well and, uh, you know, wish you a blessed Pentecost Sunday. We have oh, Pentecost Sunday ahead of us here. Okay. And, uh, you know, in all of these things, we talked about Taylor Marshall and, you know, the position that he has and, or uh, the position that he, that he has now, you know, it, it might be, a, it, we hope it's a work in progress. We have to pray for that intention. Uh, but we have to ask the Holy Ghost to do what our Lord himself has, has prescribed for him to do in the world. And when I say we have to ask the Holy Ghost to do this, it's not as though we, the Holy Ghost needs us to ask him, to invite him to do this. Uh, the Holy Ghost knows what he needs to do. He has the power to do it. He's commissioned by Christ. He's sent by the Father and the Son to accomplish this. He's going to accomplish this in his own way, in his own time. But if there's anything we can do to expedite that, and open the way in our own hearts and souls to open our hearts and souls by receiving his gifts. We need to do that. That's our mission. That's our purpose right now. And that's the mission of the Holy Ghost within our hearts and our, our, our individual souls right now. So we need to be on board with that. Entirely committed to that. Uh, mission of the Holy Ghost within us. And uh, the mission of the Holy Ghost, as our Lord said, was to, to confront the world and convict the world to convict the world of its sin, of the judgment against it, and of the justice that awaits because of their rejection of faith in our Lord. And we beg the Holy Ghost to do that. We implore him uh, that he will accomplish that mission. We have to pray for it. What that prayer does is, is it actually removes the obstacles in our own hearts and souls to receive the grace of God. It doesn't give God any more power, it, but it does open our hearts to receive the power of the Holy Ghost more and more. And so we need also to ask the Holy Ghost to do exactly that, to open our own hearts. And as he's convicting the world, we ask him to convince us more and more of the truth of our faith, so that our faith is strengthened, so that our, our hope for our Lord uh, becomes, as it were, invincible, that nothing the world can throw at us can make us waver in our hope in our Lord. Certainly not waver to put our hope in anything in the world. Instead, certainly not that. We need the Holy Ghost to confirm us in our faith and our hope, but especially in our charity. Our love and our devotion for our Lord are the key. It's th that is the one thing, the, the charity, the virtue of love, of God, divine love in our hearts is the only thing we can take from this world. We cannot take our faith, we cannot take our hope in the sense that, well, when we get to purgatory, yes, we'll still have those things, but in heaven, faith will be superfluous, hope will no longer be necessary.
because we'll possess the great good that we we the great desire um, of every human heart. What what Saint Saint Augustine said: Our hearts are made for Thee, our Lord, and our hearts can never rest until they rest in Thee. So when our hearts rest in God, we won't have to hope for that because we'll have it. But there, our charity will be perfected. It's it's all we can take from this world, and so we have to ask our Lord through the power of the Holy Ghost, to bring that flame of divine love into our hearts such that we, we know the love of God for us and we never, ever doubt that, but that we also can respond with love for our Lord, which overcomes all other, all things in the world, and which actually uh, overcomes every human Fable, uh, feeble weakness, and so on and so forth, and which simply triumphs over all. The love for God, which which enables us, will enable us someday to see Him and to know Him, even as I am known, even as as, as He knows me. I want that union with God. I hope, I wish everyone would, and I wish everyone would uh, want to love God more and more, and finally, with all His heart and mind and soul and strength. That's what we all have to desire. So, you know, to wrap it all up, I'm sorry I'm going on, uh, but I think you get the point. This, is, this is, should be our great prayer during this time, that we should grow in faith, yes, grow in hope, yes, but for the sake of growing in love, all of the first two, growing in faith and hope, for the sake of increasing our love for God, and that we have a firm desire every day of our lives to go- love God fir- firmly and completely, with all of our powers of loving. That's our goal. That's the work of the Holy Ghost in the soul. All right. Father, thank you. God bless you. Sir, thank you, Don. Yep. God bless you, too. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.